Hello, YouTube theologians. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller here with Pastor Andy Packer, Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Collinsville, California, Northern California. Uh, <laughs> w- welcome uh, to this program where we answer your questions. Uh, you can send in those questions, wolfmuller.co slash contact. What do we got, Pastor Packer? Well, Al Mohler just linked Illinois and California with their governor, so maybe you're not too far <laughs> off there. Um, first question, how do I fight habitual sins? I was, he says, hello, pastor. I was wondering if you could speak about habitual sin and overcoming it. I've been struggling with less throughout my life, and while I've taken steps to combat and repent of it, at times it is depressing when I find myself still struggling with it. Would love to hear your thoughts. Uh, thank you. There's a, this is a big topic, but maybe just a couple of things um, by way of just sketching uh, some things to think about. Uh, the first thing is that um, there's two battles when it comes to sin. The, f- the first is before the sin, and the second, which is really the biggest battle, is after the sin. If we are tempted, that we're fighting to stay holy, to keep God's law, to do what God has commanded and not what our flesh and the world and the devil want us to do. So there's that initial battle. But if we fail and commit a sin, then there's a secondary battle, and that is how do you consider that sin? And recognizing that with habitual sin, this is where the devil is working. There's two things that he's doing. He is, on the on the one hand, storing up guilt. And on the second, he's hardening your conscience. So that when the devil can get us in this repetitive cycle of sin, sinful thoughts, sinful words, sinful actions, sinful reactions to things, then he's storing up our own guilt, which he can pile up and just dump on us all at once. Look at all these wretched things that you've done. And also he's he's um, he's hardening our conscience so that we become uh, more and more dull. Or um, the, the, uh, Paul talks about the searing of the conscience, like a like calloused, like if you walk around all summer barefoot and then you your feet lose their sensitivity, our conscience begins to lose its sensitivity to our sin. Um, one of the ways then that we fight against it is we recognize that the Lord's mercy covers our sins, that, that we, we don't want to give the devil a foothold to come and condemn us. That's not his job. He can accuse us. That's his job. And when he accuses us, he's helping us. He's helping activate the conscience and showing us our sin. But he is not, he's, he's not the, he is the accuser, not the condemner. That's the Lord's job who judges us. And so we don't let the devil judge us for our sins. That belongs to God. So we, we confess our sins and God who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that we're, we're working spiritually to tenderize our conscience and part of that tenderizing conscience is a growing disgust at our own sinful desires, our own sinful thoughts, our own sinful words, our own sinful deeds, our own sinful reactions to things. I think that's where a lot of habitual sin is, is that I, I see something and I react with anger, with lust, with pride, with whatever. So our sinful reactions, are we're, our conscience is being sensitized to those things. Um, there's also things, especially, so I think lust was mentioned, so if habitual sin is kind of running around the sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery, it's good to to pay attention to uh, where that pattern starts. So if you find yourself committing a sin, um, acting in a way you shouldn't act, uh, thinking in a way you shouldn't think or whatever, you know, track it back. How does that start? And you want to avoid all those the triggers in the, in the particular situation. Uh, one of the, I mean, just to speak somewhat plainly, is that the availability of 
the kind of ubiquitous availability of pornography makes this a really dangerous trap for a lot of people because it's surrounding you. And so the desire to look on the things that you should not be looking upon, which is really just, a, it's kind of a, uh, it's, it's why the Lord, I think the Job says, I've made a covenant with my eyes because the eyes are sort of insatiable. It's really a, a disgusting thing that we are drawn to that, which is filthy. But when, when, because it's all around us, so we say, look, I'm going to make provision then to make sure that my eyes can't see uh, these things. I'm going to, I'm going to be careful um, to put guardrails up so that I can, um, so that I can guard myself because I desire to keep my heart um, pure and holy. So that's the, uh, the, there's practical things, you know, we got to, we got to make sure that um, our devices are off and our internet's filtered and all that kind of thing as we are, as we're using these external tools to fight against these temptations. So there's a few things. That's just a kind of thumbnail sketch to uh, suggest some ways of thinking about this. What do you, what do you have on that? Um, I think on the, after you've committed it, one, one way that helps fight it, but also right, just making a habit of get, going to confession and absolution so that you can hear the word of God um, pronounce that forgiveness to you for that specific sin. Because I think what happens is, right, that the devil wants to hide in darkness. He wants us to hide our sin and think we're the only ones who struggle with this or, you know, it just becomes this endless vicious cycle. Whereas if you have to confess it out loud and hear it, um, then it can be, then it can be dealt with properly. So I think that's a huge help against those things because you're not hiding it anymore. You're, you're actually dealing with it properly. Um, right. You're getting it out there and getting it forgiven. And then on the other side of things beforehand, you mentioned a couple of practical things. Luther talks about um, labors, watchings and, and fastings. Um, fasting being just fasting, you know, <laughs> like actually fasting from food, disciplining our bodies through, through biblical fasting, not because we're trying to manip manipulate God, but because it's, it's good for our, our flesh to be disciplined in that way. And he also talks about watchings, which is prayers. And he especially talks about, um, you know, prayers like at night, um, when you're, when you're restless and can't sleep, like disciplining yourself to pray, um, and then labors, he talks about labors of love, doing hard things for others are all ways in which we can help discipline the flesh, which is helpful in, in fighting sin, like learning self-control, learning moderation, learning these things that, that can help us as we battle very specific sins then uh, outside of those things. So, Yeah, that reminds me, and, and your answer, you should answer these questions first, because confession absolution is the thing that the Lord has given us for this, to fight against these habitual sins. And then I remember a, I just found it, I'll put it, a link in the description. Um, there's a, a section where Luther's talking about Jacob, and he just basically outlines how we deal with lust. Uh, and um, he, he starts, moreover, it's not without purpose and beside the point that when Holy Scripture states that Isaac married Rebekah when he was 40 years old, it points out that he did not take a wife in the well-known first passion of youth, but stood firm for a considerable time in his battle against, against and victory over the flesh and the devil. And so this is a um, this is a nice uh, uh, little section of Luther to meditate on as well. So I'll put the link in the description. You also have on your website, um, I don't know what you have it labeled on there, but um, about the two fires, not yeah, feeding, yeah, yeah. not feeding the fire of the sinful flesh, but um, uh, feeding the new man. So you have that on there too, which is really helpful for that question. Yeah, good. Um, the next question. 
is very different, uh, but I think helpful because I think a lot of moms have this question. So what is the biblical approach to caring for children, especially babies and toddlers and those with mild or moderate developmental delays? What might be good pastoral advice? From a woman's perspective, it is hard for me to communicate what I go through to men and pastors because they see things so differently than their wives. How can pastors spiritually care for women with young children? Yeah, this this might be why Paul talks to Timothy about how the women have an uh, important role in the church, especially the older women, of training and teaching the younger women because there are some things that are very difficult to because because the the life of a man is so different than the life of a woman to have that shared um, to have that empathy or sympathy, I suppose that that shared compassion. Um, it is difficult to be a mother. Uh, this this is where the the pain of of the fall echoes most loudly for all the eaves. So that just thinking about when when Mary brought Jesus into the temple and was warned that a sword would pierce her soul or her heart, and that that moms especially feel the pain of their children more than the children feel their pain mm. and and moms feel the struggle of their children more than the children feel their struggle it's an amazing thing i was thinking about this just this last week because of the 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 mourning that a mom feels when they lose a child and how difficult it is for the dad because the mom was carrying the child in the womb and the dad had no experience the child was hidden from them and and the, the, that different way that moms relate to, to children and to their own struggles. Um, the, the pastors, are, you know, you, we shouldn't. You ask how pastors can care for um, moms with young children. Look, pastors are basically useless. Uh, they, they have one job, and that is to bring the Lord's word to you. Uh, otherwise, they got nothing. So the way that the pastor ought to care for everybody in their charge is to bring them the Lord's word, which, which shows us God's law, teaches us his wisdom, and especially the law of God when it comes to, when it comes to being a mom, it exalts, the Lord exalts mom and dad to stand on the platform with himself. So when the Lord comes out with his first commandment for how we live together as people, and he says, it's honor your father and your mother, he says to the moms and dads, you come up here and be esteemed by your children next to me. That's an amazing thing. So to know that in your vocation of mother, the Lord has given you a huge and incredible gift. He's given you a huge honor. It's why the devil is always trying to dishonor motherhood, because the Lord honors it so much, and that's why the devil hates it. So to know that even though the task is difficult, the Lord has... He's crowned it with an honor that he hasn't given to any, any other vocation, to kings and queens and rulers on the earth. He has not said, honor your king. Well, I guess he does say, honor the rulers. And, <laughs> but it's that, even that honor of the king comes from the honor of, that, you're, that we're due to our mom and dad. And 
and it's not, and and Luther in the large catechism talks about how he doesn't say love your mom and dad, but on it, it, that's it's a, even a higher command. So that the Lord is calls up above all the other uh, vocations on earth, He calls up moms and dads. So know that that's the that's the comfort and the wisdom of the law. And then the the other word to bring is the word of the gospel, which is to say that the Lord has arranged the office of mom, just like He's arranged the office of dad, in such a way that nobody is good at it. <laughs> I mean, you might be good at some parts of it, and other parts you're not going to be good at. You might like some parts, and you're not going to like other parts. Some of the parts are going to be full of joy, and other parts are going to be really found full of difficulty, like everything worth doing. And so to, to know that, that the Lord has not called you to be a mom because he knew that you were going to be good at it, but because he loved you, he loves you, and he loves your children, and he is giving you as a gift to them, and them as a gift to you. And that all of our sins are covered by his blood, and that gives us a good conscience to say, what, what, this, what the Lord has given to me here is good. So we, we serve our children with a good conscience, not from our own efforts, but from the blood of Jesus. So I think that's the, those are the ways that pastors can, can be helpful, is by bringing that word of law and gospel. And maybe going back to one of the first things you said about um, older women helping the younger women, uh, I, I do think there's there's an issue today where uh, a lot of moms who are stay-at-home moms with kids, they don't have the people resources they used to have 50, 60, 100, 200 years ago, where there were a lot more also moms in the same situation who are at home with kids that they could go to and they could work together for help. Oftentimes, these moms are much more isolated than they used to be. Um, it, it's much harder for them to find connections. So maybe as far as a pastor, maybe we can work better at trying to connect moms with other moms of, of similar circumstance in life, but also those who are older. Um, I heard a great presentation, um, I think it was last year sometime, that I listened to on the order of widows um, and how you could get these, these widows in your church who have all this life experience, uh, these different things to to teach and pass on what, what they've learned about marriage, about children, about, about life. Um, and especially in supporting, um, women like, like the mom asking the question. So I'm mean, finding better ways to help women connect with one another, um, in a world that increasingly seems like a, a stay at home, stay at home mom is more and more rare. I think is especially helpful and valuable because it is, no one was ever meant to do this alone. Um, I mean, we can mock, you know, the politicians who say it takes a village to raise the children, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, the family used to be uh, mom and dad, aunts and uncles, grandparents, and much closer proximity, all helping each other. And we just don't have that as much anymore. It's still in some places, but not as much. And so finding ways to connect these people um, is helpful. I heard a, a, a read, I mean, it was kind of anecdotal, so it's not like an official statistic, but that, that stay at home, that mom, homeschooling moms of large families are often very much tempted uh, for adultery. Um, as a pastor discussing this issue that he's experienced with all these these women coming to him and uh, confessing these things and talking about these things. And he said he felt like part of it was they're just so cut off often. They're just very lonely. Um, and, and they've got got these responsibilities. So I do think it's a, it's a real issue that we should try to connect, work at connecting people, um, especially women with women, older women, women their age, to, to help them figure these things out. Because like you said, uh, we're going to be useless on 
a lot of things that they're they're struggling with and that they're working through. Like yeah. we can give them God's word, which is fantastic, but on the practical stuff they're looking for, uh, we're not we're not it. We're not there, we're not gonna be the guy. There is a thing too that, that yeah, there's a there's a shame in wanting that in needing help. You know, I, mm. I, I'm terrible at this, but I think we're bad at this. We just, we, people actually want to help. They just don't know how. And because we don't know how to ask for help, then we're kind of, we're, we're, we're cut off from each other even more. So there is a way that just, if you need help, you should ask. And, and it should be like, sometimes we ask when we're like at needing help level 10, <laughs> like yeah. disaster. You should say, okay, am I at a needing help level four? Okay, that's probably the place to ask because first of all, it's going to be actually a lot easier to help someone at level four than level ten. As I, I, I tell the couples of the church, hey, when when you start to sense that something is a little bit skewed, come in and talk to me. But n- normally, it's like, okay, pastor, we ha- we've signed the divorce papers. Now, yeah. how are you going to fix it? <laughs> Look, what, maybe like three years ago, we should have had a conversation. Yeah. So when you start to sense that need of being overwhelmed of of not knowing what's going on, et cetera, et cetera, then that's the time to reach out, ask for help. And a good thing to do would be to say, hey, Pastor, is there is there someone who's done this who could who could be helpful? Is there someone you could connect me with who I could just, I could sit down and, or maybe they could come over and I could make coffee and we can fold clothes together and, and we can kind of talk through things. That, that, those connections are, would be wonderful for everybody involved. Yeah, I think the idea of trying to do it on our own, um, it, whether it's a, as a Christian, as a husband, as a father, as a mom, as a wife, whatever, trying to like figure it out on our own, I don't think it's ever how it was supposed to be. Um, but we've convinced ourselves that um, we we can do these things on our own, and we can do some things, but usually we need advice, help, encouragement in various forms. So, like you said, don't be afraid to ask. Yeah, it's good. All right, so the next one. I didn't need ask. your help answering that question. I could have done it by myself. You could have. You could have. You had it. Um, <laughs> help me, Packer. Help me. This is. I'm gonna, that, I'm gonna that in fact, is a thing about this show because I was trying to do this podcast by myself, and I'm like, right, Andrew, you got to help me. That's why I'm here. I am. I am. I'm the prop to make sure this gets done. <laughs> making, making sure this happens. Oh. That's uh, a- I'm gonna let you take this one on your own because that's to do with uh, end times eschatology stuff, and I'll let you go at this. Oh, uh, my friend says there are two judgments stated in the Bible. I can only find one, and I have not heard anything about two. I've been a Lutheran since my mid twenties. She states that there is a bema judgment and a white throne judgment. She also explains that the bema judgment is for believers and white throne for non-believers. In addition, we will go to the bema judgment for what we have done for the kingdom of God. This frustrates her because she feels she's not doing enough and is going to fail the Bema judgment. Can you shed light on this? I want to remain anonymous, which we always do anyway. Um, all right. So, yeah, this comes from out. millennialism, uh, from premillennialism and really dispensational premillennialism. It's divide, there, you. Okay. So let's let me let me take three steps back and get a good running start at this thing. So. The, there's there's probably three major, four or five, but three major different views of the end times, the eschatology, we call it, the, the theology of the end. And a lot of them have to do with the relationship of Jesus to the 1,000 years discussed in Revelation 20. 
so that premillennialism, that's that 1,000 millennium means 1,000. So that premillennialism is the idea that Jesus will come back in glory and then establish his kingdom for a thousand years on earth, and then then comes the end. And what that premillennialism does is it ends up having two judgments, two resurrections, two maybe three second comings, which is weird. It's like, was this the first second coming or the second second coming or the third second coming? And it splits all those things up. And, and that's the schema that gives you this the distinction between the Bema and the in the white throne. Bema just means judgment seat. Is it, how come I can't, is it Hebrew, right? It just means throne. Right? So, it, it, but they've, they've divided this up because they need to have a judgment at the beginning of the thousand years and, and then, and, and, a, and a, like a mini resurrection at the beginning of the thousand years. What they, the, what the first resurrection, which they take as a physical resurrection of the believers, where the believers who were raptured or who died before the, that that second coming, they are then brought in to rule and reign, and they rule and reign over the Jewish people who were converted in the seven-year tribulation right before the second coming. It's all pretty crazy. And then and when the thousand-year ends, there's a little season of Satan, and they... Uh, and then comes the great judgment and eternal life. So, so have so separate. So, putting the return of Jesus before the thousand years gives you two or three of everything. But the 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 questioner is right in that the Bible doesn't. They're separating events that the Bible would wants us to consider. So there is one second coming. There is one return of the Lord in glory. There is one little season. You, you see how they even have like before the second, before the first second coming, you have the seven year tribulation. Before the second second coming, they have the Satan's little season. That's all of one piece. So things get really bad before the end, and then the Lord comes in glory and He ushers us into the new heaven and the new earth. Which means that Jesus doesn't come back before the thousand years, but rather the thousand years is a description for us of the, the time of the church. And the first resurrection is baptism, as Paul gives it to us in, in Romans 6, uh, buried with Christ through baptism, so we walk in newness of Christ. And those who partake of the first resurrection don't partake of the second death. In other words, the baptized are not condemned. This is, um, I think this is the best way to read Revelation 20. I'll put a link to some eschatology videos also that we've done kind of explaining the differences and how we view this but the key for revelation 20 is to note when the thousand years begins there's an event that marks the beginning of the thousand years and it's the binding of the devil and and the temptation is this is how the dispensational premillennialists answers it's like well obviously the devil isn't bound because look around but remember we are not look aroundists we don't we want to say, well, does the Bible speak of binding the devil? And we find over and over Jesus talking about it in his parables. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, uh, even in the scriptures for the, or in the epistles. For this reason, the Son of God was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. John three, John five eight, and most especially John or Hebrews two fourteen, that just as we participate in flesh and blood, Jesus partook of the same, so that through his death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil. So through his death, Jesus destroyed the devil. We confess that by faith, even though we don't see it yet, Hebrews 2.8. So the crucifixion, the ministry, suffering, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus is the binding of the devil to mark the beginning of the thousand years. So 
I'll put some links on that again, but hopefully that's helpful, that the dispensationalists are always trying to pull out and find two or three of what the Bible gives us as one, one event. And maybe just add one thing to that. One, before you get comments, uh, Bema is Greek, because someone will, will say Thank that you. to you. Um, that Then we can avoid lots of comments I on. I appreciate it. See, I do, I need, do need your help. I, that's yeah, like... on that one. Um, so in Matthew 25, right, when you have the, the sheep and the goats at the judgment seats, um, when Christians are judged on judgment day, because our judgment day took place on the cross and we're in Christ, like we don't have anything to fear. Like it's a glorious day for us. The final judgment is a beautiful thing for the Christian and God. I like the way I said, Augustine puts it. He says something to the effect of um, God, God blesses and rewards the works he's worked in and through us. So the good works we do for others, like God is so generous. He even, even blesses the fact that he's worked those works in and through us uh, by his spirit to do for others. And he, he rewards us for those too. So judgment day for the Christian is not, cause that's how I grew up. Um, cause, cause there are like uh, probably similar circles to the, the person asked the question, like you kind of dread as a Christian judgment day. Like, like I always had it in my mind as a kid that on judgment day, my whole life would be played before everyone and everyone would see all my sins, you know, so judgment day was something you didn't look forward to because you're like, man, that's gonna be terrible. Everyone's gonna see all my awful stuff. Rather than on judgment day for the Christian, the Lord's rewarding what he's worked in and through you for others. Like you're receiving all the gifts of the eternal inheritance that are for you. It's not anything to fear. It's something to look forward to. So whenever Christians start dreading that, you know, there's a problem because judgment day for the Christian is gospel. It's law for the unbeliever. It's law for the one who's going to be condemned to hell. But for the Christian, it's a beautiful day. We should never fear it. We should look forward to it with great joy and hope that it's finally all going to come. All the promises are going to be true for us in every possible way. So um, don't fear it. Delight in it. Be excited about it. Uh, confess your sins now where you fail. And then on that day, you'll even get rewarded for the things, as we see in Matthew 25, many things you didn't even realize you were doing. Uh, God will bless you for those too. So, It's great. It's great, great. All right, last one. We're about out of time. This is in response to something else you've said, which comes up a lot. <laughs> well, this person. I'm, I'm glad that this is a conversation. Actually, you know that yeah, mean, yeah. people are like, "Hey, hold on, buddy." Uh, so, th so thanks for being part of it. You know, I mean, thanks for the people who are sending in questions for thinking about this and pushing back too when it needs to be pushed back. So, so this this one is a a guy who became disabled at 52. And he's currently 71, um, hasn't ever had a lot of money, and he's troubled with your opinion on cremation. He says, we had to cremate my mother as a funeral was 8,000. Our LCMS pastor did the graveside service. I'll have to go the same way. I have no options. Even a natural burial is expensive. Any thoughts on my options? Yeah, so I, I, I in Colorado, half of the funerals I did, I think, were cremations everybody wants to be cremated in in colorado it's weird it's in fact the more mountainous a place is the more people prefer cremation hmm. which I, I and so in texas it's nice most people have um you know want to have a bodily burial but we have two services this week which are both the both bodies were were cremated so it, it's the, the question is not is it a sin to be cremated i mean maybe that's a, a question but i i do not think we can say that it's a sin to be cremated it can be a sin depending on why the church used to forbid cremation because it was a pagan practice because it was a denial of the resurrection in other words when you're done with something you burn it that's what you you throw it away 
And, be, and the pagan idea is that we're done with our bodies. Now, here's the Christian idea. We are not done with our bodies. Even when we die, the same body that's buried will be raised. So, so it, it wasn't like the Lord gave Jesus a different body after, because if that was the case, then his old crucified body would be in the grave. But that body which was crucified and buried is the body that came up out of the grave, and that's how it is also for us. Our body, our graves will be as empty as the grave of Jesus. Now, how will the Lord do this if our bodies just decompose or if we die at sea and we're eaten by by fish or whatever, uh, or if we're missionaries that are eaten by cannibals? That's a weird one. I mean, how, how, we Paul tells us in Philippians that the Lord will remake our bodies like unto his glorious body by the power which enables him to hold all things together. So the same power that the Lord Jesus uses to govern the universe, he will use to reconstitute our bodies in the resurrection. So nothing prevents the resurrection. Uh, burial, uh, de decomposition, even cremation, it does not prevent the resurrection. So the question for us is, how do we best confess the resurrection? And this is where cremation can be a sin if it's used as it was used by the pagans to deny the resurrection, to say, I'm done with my body, just throw it away. We, we want to confess, I'm not done. I'm not done with my body. And so the Christian practice is burial. Jesus was buried. Everyone who, any, any, in the Bible, anybody who had anything to say about what happened to their body was buried. Now, cremation does not preclude burial. And I think this is important, is that if we do go the route of cremation, for, for whatever reason, that that body ought to be buried. It should not be scattered. It should not be thrown around. It should not be kept in the attic. But it should be buried because of what Paul talks about, that what is planted is raised. Now, again, if, the, if ashes are spread around, it's not going to prevent the resurrection. But how do we confess the resurrection? So I think we want to make provision for burial, even if we are, if we're cremated. I also think there are resources for this. So our congregation has resources for people who are, who are looking for a bodily burial and finances are very tight so that we can help with that. And in fact, we're working on, because we're, we're in the city and it's difficult for, for congregations in the city to have a cemetery, but we're actually looking for a place in a country church if maybe we can have share a cemetery. Mm. So our congregation can have a kind of a shared cemetery plot. So there could be a place also for people to help with those expenses. And I don't know if every pastor would, but I, I am always willing to help with, ex with funeral expenses because I think it's important. A lot of people think that it's a waste um, to spend money on funeral arrangements, but that is not biblical. Remember how Mary anointed the feet of Jesus uh, the Saturday before Holy Week, before he rode into Jerusalem, and Judas was complaining that she used the expensive ointment uh, and it could have been sold and given to the poor. And people think, well, I'm wasting money on a funeral because they're just, they're dead anyways. But Jesus says, no, she was right. She was anointing me for burial. So spending money on funerals is in, in, our, in the biblical way of thinking, not, not a waste. So I'm always willing to try to help so that people can have a, have a burial there too. So, so there's a couple of things. So don't, 
I don't want your conscience to be troubled, but I do want you to think that there might be other options. And the question is always, how do I confess the resurrection? That, that, that's the, that should be the driving question when we ask, how should we treat the body of the dead body of a Christian? And the driving, the driving theological thing is the doctrine of the resurrection. Uh, maybe just to add one one thing to what you're saying about costs. I think that is something churches need to consider. Um, funeral costs. Um, another thing, um, not directly related, but if we want people to stand boldly in their jobs with all the craziness, like having a fund for members who are persecuted and, and need help in between job transitioning, but the church coming together and saying, this is one of ours and we should help with the burial because the family can't afford it, I think is something that probably needs to be looked at more. Like you said, it's, it's not a waste but it should be something we consider as an act of love, uh, not just for the living, but but for those the, our member who died, that it's a, a final pastoral act um, to bury them in the hope of the resurrection. And maybe Remember even... This... Oh, no, go, ahead. go ahead. I'm so... No, no, you... you. Oh, I was just going to say, it, there's also issues with state laws in some cases that, that maybe as a church, we need to do better at looking into finding ways to make these things uh, less expensive rather than... Because, I mean, the first thing everyone always mentions is it's, it's so expensive to do this. Um, but I've seen some presentations that have shown that there's ways to do this that do not cost nearly as much as you think. Um, we're oftentimes being upsold all kinds of things that are not necessary, um, depending on the state you live in. And so even just those practical things are worth, you know, considering and, uh, churches helping their members think through and look into so that they, right. They have options. I need to look into it too, but there's a, so embalming is a huge cost, but it's not, it's not necessary. There's ways to, mm. to have a bodily burial and without the embalming procedure. Um, so, so that's, it's, it's just a matter of refrigerating the body so that it doesn't decompose. And you can actually get like caskets with like ice packs under it, which is, I don't, it's kind of weird to think kinda about. Weird. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, here, here's an interesting thing that, you know, Genesis ends with Joseph, making instructions for his bones to be brought back to the promised land. And you have to think that, well, Joseph, why does it even matter? But that's commended in Hebrews 11, which is why I was thinking about it. I was just reading this the other day. So this is Hebrews eleven twenty-two. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. So that this is, this is a matter of faith, that, that Joseph was confessing the resurrection, and he wanted his bones to be in Israel for the resurrection. And, and so he makes that provision so that we're, we also are making these provisions for our bones, right? And uh, for where they are to be in confession of the resurrection. So they would build these big monuments uh, for the dead, Abraham and so forth, because of their faith in the resurrection. So if, if we're governed by, if our imagination of the future, which is our hope, is governed by the resurrection, then I think we'll do all right in our funeral planning. There's a, a movie a, a, a brother pastor told me about. I haven't seen it. I believe it's, I want to say it's with Kevin Bacon, but I don't know the name. Um, it's it's about the soldier who travels with, with the body of a fallen comrade um, from the battlefield. Um, I think maybe that Iraq war or something like that's the context, something like that. Um, and he travels with the body all the way back to the burial somewhere somewhere out west um but like that's his like duty is to like go with the body and um why because the military thought it was important not just to send home uh 
the cremains of the body, but to send home the body to the family to see, right? Um, so they spent a ton of money getting, getting these bodies back to the families um, of, of, of these fallen soldiers. Um, and the pastor, you know, who was talking to me about it said, how much more should we as Christians have, have the same kind of view of uh, the body and its importance with these kind of things and treating it with respect and, and, and reverence because it is, it, it does matter. And, and so um, thinking through those kind of issues, I think is always good and helpful for us as we, as we wrestle with it. Did we get to the conscience of the questioner here? So, you know, I think you did at the beginning. So I think, I think you did at the beginning. Yes. Yeah. So this, so, so remember this, even if cremation is a sin, it's a sin that's died for by Jesus. So, so it's not, we want to look, we all, it's one of the things that death does is especially when we have the death of a loved one, we have regret because we did not love them enough. And, you know, you've been at the at plenty of deathbeds, Pastor Packer, or, or after someone has died, and people are kind of wrestling with that regret, like, ah, I should have, I should have told them I loved them more, I should have been there more, I should have been. And we always comfort each other like this, well, yeah, no, you, you did everything you could, you were a good son, you were a good daughter, you were a good parent, or whatever it is. That's a little bit of a false comfort because we did not do everything we should have done. Yeah. That regret is just guilt. That, and we deferred the guilt because we thought, well, I can maybe make up for it, but now I can't. It's done. So, bam, death puts a puts a, a period where we want a comma, puts a hard stop where we weren't expecting it. And now all the things that we should have done, we we can't do. But But we address that regret not with platitudes, but with the blood of Jesus. That is what you, because I am not the father that I should be and the son that I should be and the husband that I should be and the pastor that I should be and the friend and neighbor that I should be. Because I am not these things, Christ died for me, the sinner. And that good conscience comes not in my own obedience, but rather in the forgiveness of sins. So even if we did sin, that's the whole point of the death of Jesus. He came to save sinners. And we are sinners. And that gives us the confidence to think through these things with a good conscience. Now, I, I don't think you should have a troubled conscience because of the, the cremation, unless it was some of the, like, oh, well, I, in, in fact, people say, well, you know, I did think that I was done with my body, right? Mom even said that, you know, I'm done with my body. Now I'm in heaven. Just throw me in the lake or whatever. So we did have a false doctrine about it. Well, Jesus died for that too, and he loves you. And he will see you through death to life eternal. And whatever happens to your body, he will raise it from the dead. We live and die with that confidence. And we try as much as we can to make to confess that confidence with the way that we treat the dead. But we fall short and we confess our sins and we rejoice in the Lord's forgiveness. So be of good cheer. And, and you should die with a, I mean, I don't think you should die right away. But, you know, whenever the Lord calls you, you should die and plan your dying in a way that has a good conscience that knows that that judgment day is going to be a good day for you. That's what Pastor Packer was talking about. So hopefully that's helpful. Someone's going to uh, cut this clip and it's just going to be you saying you should die. And that's, <laughs> that's, that's what we're going to have left of this is Pastor Wolf Wheeler just saying you, you should, should die. die. That's all it's going to be. Well, you know, I was, this is like the funny thing in the COVID is like the mortality rate of COVID is point whatever, you know. Zero, zero, zero. Well, you know, the mortality rate, by the way, is 
100%. 100%. We should probably all recognize the fact that there's going to be a day when we're dead. And that's how that's how it goes. I mean, that is what it means to be a child of Adam and Eve, is that we're dying. But that Jesus brings us through death to life eternal. So we should probably be ready for it. It's a good word to end on. All right. Thanks for uh, sending in the questions. Wolfmuller.co slash comment? No. Slash connect slash contact is where you can send your questions. And Pastor Packer uh, likes the ones where you're complaining about my answers the most. He'll pull those up first and put them at the front of the line. So That's right. send more questions. Thanks for being part of the conversation. If you have thoughts, uh, you can put it below, too, in the comments. If you're listening on the podcast, thanks for doing that. And uh, you can, if you review the podcast or give it the five stars or whatever, that helps other people find it as well. So thanks for doing that. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks. And God's peace be with you.